In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today is the feast of the conversion of Saint Paul, and with this feast, we end the octave of prayer for the unity of Christians. And so that's why today in the Gospel we had that tremendous moment in Paul's life that became for him a turning point of everything, really. Because from this moment on, everything changed. Because he came face to face with that light and that voice. It's this moment that in the end led him to consider everything as loss and refuse, as he says in his letter to the Philippians, and that all that he had earlier constituted or considered as his highest ideals now had changed, and now he saw in front of him his uh, reason for being, his raison d'être of his whole life. So that must have been a tremendous light that appeared to him well, it uh, is in the Acts of the Apostles that we have an account of the scene where he recounts that I was on that journey and nearly at Damascus when about midday a bright light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, and you are persecuting me. The people with me saw the light, but did not hear his voice as he spoke to me. I said, What am I to do, Lord? The Lord answered, Stand up and go into Damascus. And there you will be told what you have been appointed to do. The light had been so dazzling that I was, I was blind and my companions had to take me by the hand. And so I came to Damascus. Whenever you ask God what to do, don't expect too many details. It's always going to be, well, just go to Damascus. You'll see. Same thing with Abraham. What am I to do? Just go. Just like leave your family and go. You can't say, can you give me any GPS coordinates maybe? No, just go. Which requires a certain amount of faith in God to be able to just go and entrust yourself to others. Because when we hear this account, we might be tempted to linger too long on certain details, such as the light in the sky that others also saw, or his falling to the ground, which we sometimes imagine is on a horse, but there's no horse mentioned, 
or the voice you know what was the voice like was it this um, Richard Richard Attenborough voice or was it uh, you know was it I don't know what kind of voice was it was it tender and warm and motherly or was it frightening we might think about the, the condition of his blindness you know, that was around him scales falling falling from his eyes in fact Caravaggio presented this in a very solemn masterpiece that is today in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome it's one of the first churches that pilgrims used to see when they came in through the Porta del Popolo on the Aurelian Wall, so the north north part of Rome there that leads to the uh, Via Flaminia. And very often it's like the first church you'd see because it's an old Renaissance church, so it's been around for a while. And if you ever go there on the left side, there's the Chirassi Chapel, which has the crucifixion of St. Peter and the conversion of St. Paul from about 1601, painted by Caravaggio. And, um, well, Caravaggio was given this commission by this cardinal, Cerassi, and he did a first version of what he thought might be the conversion of St. Paul, but the cardinal said, non mi piace. <laughs> he said, I, I don't like, I like, do another one, I don't like this one. And you know, we still have the original version, which was kind of like very complicated and cluttered and... Uh, Busy, and there's even an angel leaning down over St. Paul, and it's as though the angel is being held up by Jesus himself, like, don't, don't go too close, kind of thing. You know, it's like it, 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 he's hanging there in midair, reaching down to St. Paul. So it's kind of, it's very mannerist, if you know that. It's like, it's kind of complicated as a, as a painting. But instead, we have now his second attempt, which um, shows Paul falling off his horse even though there's no horse mentioned. But it's a moment there What we see Paul like on his back with his arms out in a moment of what might be described as religious ecstasy. And his eyes are shut. His legs are kind of spread out. And it's as though he were embracing the vision, even though his eyes are closed. He looks very young, very kind of, like a soldier, like muscular. Uh, in fact, he's wearing some form of Roman armor, and there's even a like a like a helmet at his at his head. And uh, the horse seems to be just kind of like stepping over him, kind of oblivious to what's going on, unconcerned. And then there's a horse trainer or horse groomer guiding the horse away to impede him from sort of squashing him with his hoof. And everything is, is dark around, around the horse, around, the, around Paul, but Paul himself is kind of like embracing this powerful light. And all these details that we see here ultimately refer to the heart of the event. The risen Christ appears as this brilliant light and speaks to Saul. And this light and this speech completely transforms his thinking and indeed transforms his entire life. It's this dazzling radiance of the risen Lord that blinds him 
and it's as though that outer reality that he's embracing cleans the blindness that he had to the truth or heals that blindness now suddenly he can see though he's blinded he can at least see the light of Christ and this becomes his definitive yes to Christ it's a it's like an illumination that he received now that's why when we are baptized baptism is also called called a form of illumination that's why the baptism of Jesus is one of the luminous mysteries in the in the in the holy rosary because it really gives light it allows us to see it allows us to be transformed now paul later on spoke about this event this turning point of his life on a few occasions in his letters but he never does so in great detail it's as though he presumed that the people he was speaking to already knew about this event which makes me think that he must have spoken about it quite a few times and it was like a known thing and uh, and so he doesn't even call it a conversion it's not meant to be you know like something that is like fruit of a psychological process a maturing you know as though it were only an inner change like like this famous english um, journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, he had been quite the womanizer, licentious life for many years, and he was an atheist. And I think, as I know, as I understand, he would mock the church. And then, on one occasion, he had the chance to go to Calcutta and and live with Mother Teresa, or or at least like live in her community somehow. And he was completely struck by that way of life and her poverty and the joy that he saw in that community. And uh, it led, you could say, to an inner change. He kind of matured his outlook and he converted. He became Roman Catholic. And this was really literally at the very end of his life, as though that last point was like the end point of a long process of, uh, of maturing and psychological process. But for St. Paul, it wasn't really that. It was really rather like a light that came from outside is as though the old Paul suddenly died and we have now the birth of the new Paul. Nobody would have said of him before, oh yeah, he's, he's starting to catch on, he's starting to understand us. I think, I think he's, he's getting there. You know, like somebody we see who's going to convert. Says, okay, they're clicking now. They're starting to click. Well, Paul was not clicking at all, right? He was getting worse and worse and worse. He was ferocious, right, in dragging Christians out and so forth, right? And so he really describes it as an appearance. He says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says that Jesus appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, the the risen Jesus that is, and then he appeared, he says, to 500 brethren, and last of all, he appeared to me. He appeared to me. Like, he appeared. It wasn't the fruit of some inner process. And so, perhaps that's why he doesn't call it a conversion. Like a conversion, we might describe it as you're thinking about it, thinking about it, and you come to a conclusion, and that's what you come to. It's more a kind of a transformation. So it's not just that what we think as 
you know, as, as maybe as a conversion experience. It's rather, it's a complete change of life. You could say that, a conversion of life, that means your entire life is transformed. And that has to happen to us too. Our father would describe it as a process of beginning and beginning again. And so that means that when we convert, nothing of the old man or the old woman, if you like, has to stay, you know, has to stay with us. We have to leave it behind in some way. Which means that we are in some way called to a permanent conversion. Everything in the past has to somehow be purged. All the wood, all the hay, the stubble, all that stuff has to be somehow burnt away. It is as though my whole life must be converted. It's my whole life has to be changed. We are converted, in other words, not just my world, but in such a way that the whole, the whole world around me converts. There's a curious line that St. Paul says. He says, the whole world groans and turns for redemption as a woman in childbirth. A woman in childbirth, she's in pain, but she knows she's giving birth to a, a new life. A new child is coming into the world. So, you know, we, we often hear about bad things happening in the world, uh, out there, and uh, what if we were to see all the changes in the world in terms of our own conversion. If I could convert and reconvert and continually convert a kind of a permanent conversion, wouldn't that in some way lead to the conversion of the world around me? When you see the saints, they participate not only, of course, in their own salvation, but they have a role in participating in the salvation of the whole world. There's a connection between my own conversion and hence salvation, my own fidelity to my vocation, and in some way the fidelity and salvation around me. If we could just somehow have eyes to see the eternal effects of that one action of, let's say, an action of self-sacrifice and a mortification, that one decision that we make to obey what maybe we don't really like, mm -hmm. or that gracious act with those who live with us, that, that, that fraternal correction where we try to help somebody in some way. If we could only see the extent of the impact of those, of course, those good actions, you know, that would be the ultimate fruit of our own conversion. It would lead to our conversion, our change, but it would have its subsequent impact around us. If we could just see the final outcome of our personal actions, we would be, we'd be astounded at how the conversion of our one solitary life reverberates down through the ages, and indeed down through all of time. Our personal conversion. You know, maybe that's why there are so many popular conversion stories. There are whole TV programs based 
on conversion stories. People who have joined the Catholic Church or had reversions, I guess. And th there's a certain fascination with that. Why do you recount somebody's conversion story? Because somehow one understands that one person, one person's conversion reverberates beyond them. It's not just about their own like solitary experience. And so that means that if we are pursuing true conversion, like the conversion that happened in St. Paul, true conversion of life, it's as though we're entering into an upward spiral in which we somehow participate in a life that is greater and more graced and more abundant than we could ever imagine. One little tiny act of service, one little tiny act of fidelity, one moment in which we are working well out of love for God, an act of mortification which is demanding for us, this is like a, a, has a spiraling, reverberating effect. Much more than we could ever imagine. And indeed, probably the Lord will never show us the impact. Maybe we'll see that when we are in heaven. And that's why if we don't actually seek complete conversion that is a true change of life well then we are going into a downward spiral into the darkness of nothingness after all uh, St. Paul saw had a conversion there it was a change of life but he saw light he saw light it was too much for him he was blinded by it he had to be taken by the hand on the way to Damascus Damascus is kind of like that end point that kind of like represents heaven. But in the end, it's also a starting point because it's the starting point of his life where he becomes that apostle. After that, he goes to Arabia and goes and, and in a kind of a retreat. And uh, if we don't seek that conversion, we're going somehow downward into a solitary sp spiral of, of ourselves. That's why we, we ask the Lord to give us that grace really to be conscious of the needs of others. Maybe sometimes our, our, our life seems a little bit gray or ambiguous and you know we have to today renew our desire to reconvert and really take on the seriousness of the path that the Lord has given us, the vocation that God has given us. You know, if it is for life and for the conversion of life, really let us run down that path. If our hearts could just be overflowing with delight, the delight of that comes from, from love. So even his conversion, even his delight, is not some kind of closed event within himself. He was bathed in the light of God, and that's what had that tremendous effect. I mean, who can you think of that is more important than St. Paul in terms of elucidating the mystery of Christ, the doctrine of Christ? I mean, he went on in great detail with all those letters. That event truly expanded his heart and made it open to all. He's become all things to all for the love of Christ. And uh, of course at this moment he didn't lose anything that was true and good in his life, in his own heritage, 
his Jewish heritage. I mean, that's why St. Paul is considered really the ideal instrument that God wanted because he knew perfectly well, of course, the Jewish world. He knew Hebrew. He knew Aramaic. Right? He knew everything about the law, the law of Moses. But also, he grew up in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, so he knew Greek. He knew about the stories of Alexander the Great. And, but he was also a Roman citizen. He knew about the roads that the Romans had been, had been building throughout the, the empire. This is the, I don't know if it's the first time, but pretty much the first time that an entire empire is connected with Roman roads. And those Roman roads later on became the pathways along which the letters of St. Paul, the gospel, just the message of the gospel was transmitted. It was like the early form of the internet. You know, that's how the gospel was able to be spread throughout of all of Europe, because of those roads. If it had not been for those Roman roads, how would they have gotten there? Well, it would have been maybe possible, but it would have been much more difficult. So this expanded his heart. He understood you know, the wisdom, the truth, and the depth of the law. He understood the prophets in a new way now. A new way that, that really made it his own and how he could transmit the law of Moses, the law of the prophets. And for us, uh, the spirit of the work is, is not some kind of new philosophy or that we must understand and figure out or how to act it's not like some simply some kind of new morality or something like that because we are really Christians if we encounter that living Christ we encounter him in the work we encounter him through the spirit of the work now that he's not going to show himself like maybe like he did to St. Paul but he does show himself in a luminous way through our formation we come to understand of the spirit of Christ, the, the, the teaching of the church, the spirit of the work. That's the key that we must embrace in our ongoing book, uh, conversion. It's the, to really to discover the light of Christ. It's encounter with Christ. Whether it's in the norms, whether it's in the mass, in scripture itself, in our prayer. We can touch Christ's heart and feel him touching ours. In, in the plan of life, in our friendships, in our work. We have all the network of realities in which we can really encounter the Lord, just as, as Paul was going along part of that network in his, on the road to Damascus. And that's where he encountered the living Christ. So let's ask the Lord to help us see that the light of Christ when we do the norms, when we do offer a little mortification, when we give hope to someone, we give them a sense of purpose. We can ask, does the plan of life lead me to a genuine encounter with the risen Christ? Like, like St. Paul. I mean, is, is a norm like that? With the, with the luminous one. He gives me clarity. He gives me a sporting spirit to do my apostolate my fraternity, my work, my study. Now, when we see somebody very engaged and, and smiling and, and cheerful and, and able to speak well, and when we see like your ideal 
person, you know, at your ideal uh, assistant numeric, you know, she's really smart and she's funny and she's good at get-togethers, you know. Is that just because she's like smarter? Is that just because she's like, I don't know, something in her? It has something to do with that encounter with Christ, the luminosity of encountering Christ. Can I really reframe all this stuff that I have to do and see myself perhaps like like Caravaggio saw St. Paul lying down there on his horse or below the horse, even though there's no horse? Plus, they say that that horse is not wearing a saddle. It's like, where's the saddle for the horse? You ride a horse, you're supposed to be wearing a saddle, as far as I know. You know? And uh, you're not going to ride bareback on a, on, a, on a horse. It's, it's like not good for the horse. Right? So some people say, well, why is he wearing a saddle? Well, they said, well, maybe he's not wearing a saddle because Caravaggio thought that the event actually took place in a stable, you know, where the horse was resting. So that would have been right at the very beginning of his journey to Damascus. And therefore, he had the vision just at the beginning, even though he does say it's at the end of the, you know, at the end of the trip. But anyway, let's like, take that away, you know. <laughs> but they say, well, no, actually, Caravaggio thought it was maybe at the beginning of the trip, and therefore it gave a new tone to the whole rest of the journey. But it's clear is that Paul he was able to abandon himself into the light of Christ, and his life was now under the divine gaze. And that's where he got all his courage from. That's where he got all his audacity from. His deep faith. His profound understanding of the mystery of Christ. All those things that we read in his epistles. His explanations. They were all inspired by that encounter with Christ. He was able to rise above the concerns of everyday life. Of his own weaknesses. Remember that passage from the letter of the Corinthians, second letter of the Corinthians? He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says St. Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Like you hear, when I'm weak, then I'm strong? What? Like it sounds like... Well, that's because... He was strong because of the light of Christ, the encounter with Christ. And us too, faith makes us strong. Christ's light makes us strong. The grace that we received in our vocation makes us strong. So let's ask this of St. Paul today. And uh, let's ask him to make us strong. How? By engaging in that encounter with the light of Christ whether it's in the plan of life, whether it's in daily work, whether it's in fraternity, in friendships, in rest, in enjoyment. Somewhere in those things, the Lord is waiting for us as we make our way on the road to Damascus. And uh, 
Damascus is there. We're on our way. It's going to come. We're going to get there. Maybe we have to be led by the hand, but we will get there. And the Blessed Mother, our Queen, will guide us also along the way. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede.